Grace and mercy and peace belong to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It is the first century A.D. You are a commercial fisherman and your home is Capernaum, a fishing town on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. You're just coming in from a pretty good catch. You're pretty, pretty thankful to the Lord, pretty satisfied. However, as you are downloading your catch and you're starting to process it and you're getting ready to, to walk into town, you see someone coming f- toward you and you can tell by their body language that that person wants to talk to you. And you know this person. His name is Matthew. And he is a tax collector. In order for you and me to give, get at least a sense of all the, the negative emotions that you as a fisherman in Capernaum are about to have erupt out of you upon seeing Matthew the tax collector, let's take a moment to get the context. Because at at first glance, we might think, well, he's a tax collector. It's like working for the IRS. It's it's not pleasant for other people, but it's, it's necessary and it's an honorable position. When we study the context, however, of what it meant to be a tax collector in Capernaum of Galilee in the first century at the time of Jesus, we will find that they were a reviled people. We're going to touch on three things regarding tax collectors very briefly. First of all, whom the tax collectors represent. Second, the tax collectors' methods for doing their job. And third, the tax collectors' place in society. So first of all, whom the tax collectors represent. They represent the Roman Empire. And Rome at this time loves taxes. They love taxes and they love fees. They have import taxes, export taxes. They have travel tolls. They have town dues. They have a massive list of all kinds of ways to take people, to take money away from people. There is even a tax under Rome, a tax for breathing, for existing. If once you reach your early teens, whether you are a man or a woman, simply for being, you will start to get taxed every year by Rome. And this money that for the taxation, it does not go for public education. It doesn't go for basic goods and services or, or improvements on roads. The vast majority of all those taxes get on a boat and go to Rome and you never see it again. There are zealots. It's a class of people of Jewish background. They call themselves the zealots. It is their desire to kick Rome out once and for all. They are convinced that paying tribute to a pagan king is an act of treason against God. That's whom the tax collectors represent. Now their methods, 
they did, as many of us perhaps have heard, that they did tend to overcharge on taxes and then pocket the difference for themselves, but that is only the tip of the iceberg. It is the typical style of tax collectors in the first century to have a style of, of one really of harassment. It would be no problem for a tax collector, for instance, to come and open up your carton of goods, look at it, and then proclaim that it was of some high astronomical value, and then proceed to say, well, I must charge you a tax, commensure it with this high value. Or tax collectors would think nothing of opening up a, a carton of your goods, looking it over, and then, and then falsely accuse you of trying to smuggle it in a, uh, illegally, while at the same time quietly holding out their hand for some hush money, telling you, if you are willing to give me a little hush money, I'll stop accusing you of having tried to smuggle this in illegally. And if you can't pay, no problem. They will lend you the money for a very high rate of interest. Also, if you encounter one tax collector on one side of town and do what he wants you to do, there is no guarantee that by the time you get to another side of town, another tax collector might come along and try to work you over as well. And if you think that's unfair, well, you can go and take it to the judge, but good luck with that because the judge's salary is paid by Roman taxes. And because there is Roman military all over the place, ready to back up anything that the tax collector wants to do to you, in many, many ways you can feel quite helpless when a tax collector approaches you. And so, what is the tax collector's place in society? Keep in mind, these particular types of tax collectors are of Jewish background. And so in the eyes of the Jewish community, these Jewish tax collectors are harassing their fellow Israelites, they are cheating their fellow Israelites, they are threatening their fellow Israelites, they are betraying their fellow Israelites, they are making the lives of their fellow Israelites miserable. Why? For money? Or maybe also because of some twisted thrill out of wielding such power? Therefore, tax collectors in Capernaum of Galilee in the first century are objects of revulsion, disgust, contempt. Rabbis at this time teach that it's righteous. It is righteous to lie to a tax collector because that is what a professional extortioner deserves. Rabbis proclaim that tax collectors are disqualified as reliable witnesses for anything. Rabbis declare openly that any tax collector is a disgrace 
a disgrace to his entire family. They are to hold no office of community responsibility. And rabbis automatically excommunicate tax collectors from the synagogue. Pharisees take it a step further. Pharisees forbid anyone to marry someone who's even from the family of a tax collector. And it is not unknown for tax collectors to be targets for violence and assassination attempts, probably from people like the zealots. And if that ever happened to a tax collector, a lot of people would say, ah, oh, too bad, without shedding one tear. Rabbis at this time even debate, rabbis at this time even debate if it is even possible for a tax collector to come to repentance. And so the tax collector's place in society, oh, they might have a lot of money, but they are at the bottom of the barrel. In fact, all things considered, one could make the case that if you cut a hole in the bottom of the barrel and look through it, only then could you see the rat's nest of the tax collectors and their place in society. But then along comes Jesus. And through the power of his gospel, through the power of his message as to why he has come to rescue a world of sinners from themselves, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Through the power of that gospel, a tax collector by the name of Matthew comes to faith in Jesus as his Savior from sin. And, and, Jesus calls this same Matthew, a tax collector, to serve as one of his 12 disciples. Matthew, a tax collector. A tax collector. The next scene takes place a bit later. You and I are in, in Matthew's house. Matthew is, is hosting a, a big meal, perhaps to celebrate his new life with Jesus, and perhaps also to say goodbye to his old life as a tax collector. But present there are Jesus and Jesus' disciples, and a lot of Matthew's friends who have come to eat with Jesus and to visit with him and to listen to Jesus. Many of Matthew's friends, well, what kind of friends do you think Matthew has? The only people who would associate with Matthew, others who are in the same boat, they are all individuals from society's bottom of the barrel or beneath. Pharisees see this, the local religious leaders, and they come to, they don't come directly to Jesus, but they come to Jesus' disciples. 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's supposed to be some kind of man of God. He's supposed to be some kind of prophet. Well, what is he doing here with those people? Well, Jesus hears them. And Jesus replies. He replies by making three short but powerful statements. First, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. What a vivid point. Immediately understood. As, as the, our, our children a few minutes ago illustrated, doctors go to those who are sick. They don't set the sick aside and, and associate only with people who have no problems. So also Jesus, our great physician, has come to seek out sin-sick souls and to seek out those who realize how sick they are. Number two, Jesus says to these religious leaders, go and learn what this means. And then, and then he quotes a, a, a verse from the Old Testament. The verse is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, and the context for what Hosea is saying here is that a right relationship with God does not rest in some empty formalism that all I have to do is go through the motions of performing some sacrifice and God thinks I'm great. Rather, it lies in a repentant heart and trust in your Savior God and what He has promised to do to wash your sins away. And from that, from what He has done for you, comes the fruit of faith to show mercy towards others as the Lord has shown mercy toward you. And finally, number three, Jesus looks at these religious leaders and He says to them, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. His implication to these religious leaders is crystal clear. He is saying to these religious leaders, if you do not think you need a Savior, if you do not think you need a Savior from sin, I have nothing for you. But when you realize how sick and broken and lost in sin you truly are. I'm here. Brothers and sisters, ever feel at the bottom of the barrel or beneath it? If you ever had a moment, or perhaps you're having a moment now where, where things from the past, or maybe the, the, the not-so-distant past, of things you have done or things you have failed to do, come back with, at you crashing like a wave and haunting you so that you 
feel so small and so unworthy that you feel that you're even beneath God's contempt. One of those moments when you realize what a wreck and a mess you are. If you have ever felt that or if you feel that in this moment, good, good, good. Because Jesus has come specifically for you. For you and me. God the Son came here. For you and me, God the Son became one of us and lived on our behalf the life that you and I have utterly failed to live. And then he took upon himself all of the ways in which you and I have let our God done, let him down. All the things that we did that we never should have done, all of the things that we were supposed to do and have failed to do, that he carried them all to the cross and through his suffering and death washed them all away. And now he lives so that now through spirit-created faith in him, we are forgiven and we are his and we are home. And here's a wondrous thing. What Jesus has done in his grace for the likes of you and me is what empowers the likes of you and me to reflect that same grace toward others so that they too may find healing and cleansing and forgiveness and power to live their old lives and to live a new one, fresh and clean and new, to live a new life in Jesus. I have not come to call the righteous sinners thank you Lord Jesus thank you amen and may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Jesus amen